Thanks for leading us today, guys. It's beautiful. Merry Christmas, church. Merry crisis. <laughs> today, we are on week two of a Christmas series that we're calling Merry Crisis. Uh, for those of you who are like, why in the world would you, would you call it that? Well, the reason that we've kind of got here is because as you really go back and look at the biblical narrative, what you see is not a hallmark story. You don't see something that would make it on a Lifetime movie. What you actually see is a thriller. You see people on the run. You see wicked, evil schemes. You see people frightened and angelic beings. You see a little bit of everything in this story. And we've been trying to figure out, how do we get from this to kind of what is all this right now? Last week, I showed you a Britannica definition of crisis is a time of a great disagreement, confusion, or suffering. All right? Many of us in this room, you may be feeling like, okay, well, there's some disagreement, there's some confusion and suffering. Some of you, like, I got all three ingredients of a crisis. Some of you at least probably have one of those right now for our country, for our nation, for our culture. There's a lot of this going on. There's great disagreement. There's confusion. Where is truth? What is truth? And then there's suffering. And what we've talked about the last couple of weeks is when you look at this story, the biblical narrative of Jesus' birth here, him coming from heaven to us, his story is riddled with these three things, disagreement, confusion, and suffering. And I'm not much for titles, um, but today, if I had to give it a title, I would say this is the crisis of the crown. Last week, we kind of leaned into the identity crisis around Christmas and what the real reason for the season is. And today, we're going to talk about the crisis of the crown. If you got a Bible, I'd invite you to go to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. We're going to spend all of our time. We're going to uh, do our best. And by our, I mean my, uh, my best to get through all of Matthew chapter 2 today. Uh, today, I'm going to take a little bit different approach to Matthew 2. Oftentimes, when a pastor goes through Matthew 2, uh, he leans into uh, the story of the Magi. He'll uh, spend a lot of time talking about the gifts that the wise men gave to Jesus. He'll spend some time talking about uh, Jesus on the run or maybe even talking about prophecy. But what I want to do today is I actually want to lean into the villain of the story. If you're like me, you grew up in a place where you found yourself not learning from all the good examples, but you found yourself learning from the bad examples. And as I've come to scripture, whether it's the multiple villains who throughout the story as much as I want to relate to the heroes in the story, the Davids and Elijahs and Moseses, oftentimes I miss out on some really big life lessons because I fail to look at the hero or the villains of these stories as people we can actually learn some stuff from. You know, everybody, you know, if it's, if it's Batman versus Joker, nobody wants to be Joker, right? But at the end of the day, I think there's some things we can learn from even the villains of the stories. And today we're gonna lean into the villain of the story this guy, Herod. And we're going to see some of Herod's motivating factors and maybe see some, some fearful trepidation of things that we might even be susceptible to, to have the same spirit or motivation that Herod has as well. So if you've got a Bible, let's look at the book of Matthew chapter 2. Starts out, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So right off the bat, we got a competition for the crown. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw the star when it rose and have come to worship him. So right off the bat, 
we have a guy named Herod, and Herod is the king there in Jerusalem. And if you don't know Herod's moniker, what people called him, or he even called himself more often than not, was the king of the Jews. So picture yourself in this Herod guy's shoes. You go by king of the Jews, and now these wise men show up, and they say, we heard that there is a new king of the Jews. All right, that's immediately triggered, especially when you're a guy like Herod. I'm going to talk to him, talk to you a little bit about who he was so you get an understanding of some of what motivates him, some of his background. If I was to put Herod into four words, it would be clever and cruel. He, at one point, he was totally clever. He was sharp as a tack. He was very shrewd in what he did. He was very efficient in how he leveraged politics and power to get his way and expand his own personal kingdom. Extremely clever, but very, very cruel. And we're going to read about some of his cruelty today. Along with that, I would say pride and paranoia. He wanted his kingdom to expand at all costs. And at any time, he felt paranoid, or if someone was a potential threat to his kingdom, he would have them eliminated. And by everyone and anyone, I mean everyone and anyone. Herod had two of his wives killed, three of his sons killed. And to just put icing on the cake, even a mother-in-law killed because he felt like they were conspirators against his kingdom. He played the politic game really well. And because he played it so well, he was able to gain the favor of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the one who's ruling and reigning over this area that Jesus is born into. And Herod, at this point in time, has become essentially the puppet king for Rome. Over Rome, they had a giant empire, but some of their provinces were primarily Jewish provinces. And so what they did with Herod is they essentially set up a guy who was kind of Jewish to be over the Jews. Most Jews did not even look at Herod as a true child of Abraham. They didn't look at him as a true Jew. So it was offensive even to them to go, that guy is the king of the Jews. In fact, he is not even a Jew. They would go back to his family lineage and say he is an Edomite and not a true Jewish descendant. And while he did some good things, uh, he rebuilt and temple. One of the, the great wonders of the world is attributed to Herod, this Herod who referred to himself as, as Herod the Great and Herod the king of the Jews. He was an incredibly wicked, evil man, dead set on his kingdom expanding at all costs. And at any threat to his throne, he sought to seek and destroy. Now, there's another set of characters in here in this passage that we jump into. And it's this group of people who are referred to as wise men. You've heard these as wise men. You've heard these as magi. Some of your Bibles may translate that way. Um, the one thing I would say they are not is they are not three kings. Uh, the song, We Three Kings of Orientor, like throw that one out. Cancel that one from your playlist. They're not kings. Um, they're a part of this group. It was essentially a, a group of sages. They're not guys who are studying necessarily the Hebrew scriptures because they are Jewish in their descent and they are maybe most of them very likely are not fully believing in Yahweh as a one true God. They're studying a, a pantheon of gods and trying to figure out and interpret the signs of the age and to match those up with what they read in probably a multiplicity of ancient scriptures, whether that be from the Hebrews or even the pagan cultures that were there around them. And so these men kind of put two and two together. As they see the star in the sky, they match that up with what they have read in scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures. And they, I believe, begin to put some sort of faith in something special is happening in this night sky that is pointing to this Hebrew God who says that this is some of the signs that will show that this Messiah and this King is coming to this people group. 
the story goes on. Now, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. And what's funny, I didn't even know we were going to do this, and I even missed it last service. The word for troubled, translated in the Greek, is the word terasso, terasso. And it means shaken. I thought it was no coincidence that we just got through singing over and over again. Um, I will build my life upon your love. I will not be shaken. Now, Herod gets this news that there is a new king of the Jews who's come to town. And he gets this news and he is troubled. He literally is shaken for you uh, young folks in the room. He's shook, uh, literally. That's what's happening here. He is shook and all of Jerusalem with him. So enter in Jesus into the scenario and all of Jerusalem and its king are shaken. Jerusalem even means the city of peace. And at this moment, as these magi show up in their grand caravan, not the mini, but like the caravan of them coming together, they come together and the whole city's like, something is about to go down. And there's no peace in the city, which is crazy and ironic because the Prince of Peace has shown up on earth. And when the Prince of Peace shows up, the powers that be start to get shaken. I love that about our king. They start to get shaken and Herod he assembles all of his chief priests and his scribes of the people. And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he's like, okay, these guys just showed up. They were able to read the scriptures and put two and two together. Well, let's do the same thing. Get all my scribes and all my Bible guys together. Let's figure out where in the world he's at. And we're gonna see some of his motivation here in a second. And they told him, so he gets his scribes and his Bible people together. And they told him, hey, he's gonna be born in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written, and this is where they're quoting to him this passage. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will, be, who will shepherd my people, Israel. So he gets the citation that he needs. He gets the Bible verse he needs, and what he's getting quoted from right here is from Micah. 5.2, if you want to reference what they're quoting to him, Micah 5.2. This is an awesome text because what is explained to him, and this is helping the people know and understand that this Messiah, this king, is not a king of happenstance. This is a king of prophecy. Now, I want you to understand what Matthew, the guy who writes all of this, is doing. Matthew was what? What, what, what was Matthew's job? What was he a part of? Yeah, he was a tax collector. Jesus called him out of his tax collecting stuff. And, G, and then Matthew became a Jewish disciple of Jesus. Matthew writes his gospel, maybe a little bit unlike some of the other gospel writers. You know, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew specifically writes his gospel account of Jesus' life to a Jewish audience. So Matthew has the same mode of operation as whoever wrote the book of Hebrews that we've been studying for the last you know, six months. He's writing to a Jewish audience to prove to them that Jesus is the Christ. He's specifically, Matthew, over and over again, trying to point to Jesus is the king and his kingdom has come. And so when he goes back and he cites this, what he's talking about here is this obscurish verse in Micah where he's saying the, the rulers of Judah and from, from the land of Bethlehem will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Most people, when they have saw Micah for the first time, if you were a Jew, previous to this moment right here or reading the gospel of Matthew for the first time, you'd have read that verse in Micah and go, I know who that's talking about. It's not some Messiah figure. That's obviously talking about 
David. Because where was David's hometown? David was a king who was from Bethlehem. Now what's happening in this story, again, is showing God is over and through all of this. God is showing and prophesying and Matthew is picking up on it to show the people in the same way that your favorite king, King David, came from Bethlehem the king that he was really all pointing to is Jesus, and he is also born in Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah. Verse goes on, and he says, he will be a ruler and a shepherd. And I love that. Because you don't normally put those two things together, right? You're a ruler and a shepherd. And this is the unique attributes of our king, I would believe even Herod read those and go, ruler and a shepherd. I ain't getting out there with those sheep. I'm a ruler. I'm a king. I'm a tyrant even. Which takes me to the first thing I want you to see about Herod and this motivation, this, this spirit that I think he embodies. Because they show up, they say the king is here and Herod's first knee-jerk reaction is to do what? Well, let's go find some scripture. Herod, check me on this. Herod's knee-jerk reaction is, y'all, let's have a Bible study. And so the point I want to show you, I think, about the Herod spirit is, is the Herod spirit knows Scripture but misses the Savior. It, it knows the Scripture, and it's, it's going to go to it and find it. But the spirit of Herod, and again, I think sometimes we're even susceptible to this, the spirit of Herod will go to Scripture not looking for the Savior. The spirit of Herod goes to Scripture looking to perpetuate its own kingdom. I'm going to go to this passage. I'm going to go to the Bible. I'm going to go to this holy word of God for the sake of either proving or disproving what I want to be true. And this, this, is, a, this is a dangerous thing. Well, I'm going to go, well, I, I want to you know, pick, your, pick your sin. I want to be able to have freedom to drink this. I want to have freedom to move into my, uh, to, to, to invite my boyfriend or girlfriend to live in, move into my house. I want to have freedom to do, you know, pick your, pick your thing and what, oftentimes what we'll do is we'll go, okay, well, that's a thing. That's really what I want to do. It's, it's the whole, you start dating when you're in high school. And somebody goes, okay, uh, I used to have this all the time when I was a youth pastor. Uh, one of my guys in my high school small group start dating a new girl. Pastor Trent, how far can I go? I'd be like, oh, that is not the right question to ask. Uh, first of all, are they, you know, even like the Christian guys would come to me and go, Pastor Trey, I'm trying to figure out how far I can go with my girlfriend. Can you show me some Bible verses to help me know? I'm like, <laughs> you rascal, you know? It's because again, that's out of selfish motivation. And, and again, what I'm trying to say here is that is that spirit of Herod in us that goes, I'm gonna try to, to figure out a way to go to this to either prove that I can do what I wanna do or to disprove that I don't have to do the thing that I need to. And you're probably sitting there going like, how does this like play out in my own life? And, and where am I susceptible to this? I think this plays out and we're very susceptible to this in our own day and age is, is reading the Bible through the lens of you. When you come to scripture, friends, come to scripture to get the grand story of the God who wrote this. And this is where we get in danger sometimes is we read these stories of Old Testament heroes or we read even the stories of Jesus and we're like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and sometimes I think we, we miss the forest. We miss the truth for the little things that we want to see. Jesus understood this reality that people 
who want to glorify and honor God and want to live holy, righteous lives are gonna have a propensity to come to this scripture that he's given us and go, this is my manual. And I'll do this and not do this and God will love me more. And I will do this and not do this and God will bless me more. And I'll do this and I'll not do this and God will look at me and he'll go, I like you better. And, and, and if I do all these things that are in here, I'll feel good about myself. I think Jesus knew and understood the propensity for the human heart to want to obey and live religiously so that we knew we were righteous. And there's this really powerful interaction that Jesus has with a group of religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, there's these scribes. And over and over again, he has these interactions with them and he basically calls them out for being people who know the scripture backwards, forward, left and right and undercover. And he calls them out on all of those things and says, you know all these things, but you're still putting a burden on the people that they shouldn't have. In this one particular instance, it's actually in Matthew, Matthew 9, 13. He's having a conversation with these guys. And he, in typical Jesus fashion, he quotes scripture back to them. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the message from cover to cover of this thing should remind us all, not first and foremost, if I do everything in here, I'll be counted righteous in God's eyes. Cover to cover, the message of this book should point us to, there is nothing that I could do to be righteous before God. My righteousness before him is as filthy rags, but in stepped Jesus, who now shows me I'm a sinner who can be made a saint. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's why Jesus shows these guys. He's like, you've been studying scripture your whole entire life. You devoted your whole entire life to the scripture. And at the same point, these are the guys who crucify him. Again, when we read the gospels, you have to understand there, there are two essentially groups of people. There are the rebellious people and then there are the religious people. The rebellious people are not primarily the people who put Jesus on the cross. The reason Jesus is sentenced to the trial, the reason Jesus is, is pushed into crucifixion, the reason he ruffles so many feathers is not because he was ticking off the rebellious, the drunkards, the whores, the tax collectors, the thieves, the crippled, and the lame. Jesus was most hated by the people who knew the scripture the best. Which, again, when we take the time to pause and to look at the villains in the story, we have to understand that there are things for us to learn even from the villains of the story so that we can protect ourselves from the very things that they were susceptible to. So what I'm not saying here is stop reading your Bible and go get drunk. That's not what I'm saying, okay? We should know the word. We should fasten our lives to its guidelines and governance for us. But we have to understand the grace that is on display in here. We have to understand the central message of the gospel, that there is nothing that I could have done to be righteous before God. And we have to take Jesus as Jesus plus nothing to be our everything. 
Herod spirit will say, I'm going to leverage this book to find what I want to find, to do what I want to do so that my kingdom can come. The story goes on. It says, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and where you have found him or when you have found him, bring the word that I may too come and worship him. And here we see the, what I would say is the second attribute of the Herod spirit. The Herod spirit has worship on the lips, but really war in the heart. It longs to say on the outside and make everybody around it feel, hey, I want to go worship this Jesus. But really on the inside, there's war because there's competition for the kingdom. Really the big question here for us is motivation. This is how this comes into our own lives in regards to this Herod spirit that that I know at times I'm susceptible to. I can outwardly want to put on display to, to other people certain things, but inwardly my own heart knows that I am doing this out of my own motivation. I'm doing this so people think better of me. I'm doing this so that people know I am a good dad, a good husband, a good coach, a good pastor. See, the thing about us and all the people around us and God is we can do a really good job of fooling each other, but there is not one person yet who has fooled God, who has hidden their true motives from him as to why they do what they do. And you can trick others, but you cannot fool God. So this begs a question. Where are your motives? When you do things for God, when you do the the things you know a Christian should do, or you don't do the things a Christian, you know that a Christian shouldn't do, why? Why do you do them? If the story in the weeks that we spent going through the story of the prodigal son, it taught me anything. It taught me this. We, as God's children, children of this prodigal father who recklessly loves us, we as God's children do not just have to repent of the things that we did wrong. That's the younger brother. He does that. He does his wrong. He comes back, he repents. Father brings him into the house. But then think about the older brother. Not the rebellious brother, the religious brother who did everything right. At the end of the story, who's on the outside looking in? The one who did everything right. The one who said, Father, I have slaved for you for years and you never even gave me a goat so I could party with my friends. It just proves that you can be in the Father's house but not have the Father's heart. It proves that we not only have to repent of what we do wrong. I'm sorry because I'm gonna make Christianity harder on you right here. We don't just have to repent of what we do wrong. We have to repent of what we do right for the wrong reasons. I know I have some of those in my life. I'd be willing to bet you do too. Things you did right so other people would notice. Things you did right to prove a point. Things you did right so that you could worship how you worship. The Herod spirit says, I'll worship on the outside, but on the inside, I know who I'm really worshiping. And my prayer is that we would have the Holy Spirit guide us away from that. My prayer for myself is the Holy Spirit would guide me away from that. You away from that. The story goes on and gets even more interesting. After listening to the king, they went on their way. That's the magi, the wise men. 
And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So they essentially found where Jesus is at. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They're getting after it here and going into the house. So again, we've graduated from manger. We've gotten to a house now. This is the family kind of making a little bit of their home. This tells us that time has passed. If you've got a a nativity scene with wise men in it, go take your wise men and move them to the garage. They're not there yet. Um, They saw that the child was with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Underline, highlight, get that in your heart. They fall down and worship him. When you meet the true king, this is your only response. We fall down, we bend the knee, we worship the king. There's worship, but then there's sacrifice. They opened their treasures and they offered him gifts. There is worship and then there is offering. When you meet the true king and you surrender to him, you can't help but go, I owe you everything. You deserve this. They brought him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And again, I don't have time to go into all the significance of those. There's, there's a lot that you can study on there. Um, for the sake of today's message, I want to continue to keep going here. And being warned in a dream, this continue to show up here, warned in a dream to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So they don't hit their pit stop to Herod and fulfill his evil ways, which I love that God stymies uh, when we try to make our own kingdom be the one that moves on. Story goes on, says, Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. This is no fun. Like, if you're Joseph, this is like getting, this is like your second or third dream at this point. Like, you, Joseph doesn't sleep good at all. Like, you don't sleep good when you got an infant anyway. Like, Joseph, I, every, every, like every other night, he's getting woke up. God's telling, the angels are showing up telling him different stuff. Now he's in the middle of the night, angel is like, Hey, let's go. Uh, we got to get out of here. Wrap this whole, wrap this whole uh, Bethlehem stuff up, man. We got to roll. Uh, Herod's going to try to kill Jesus. All right, let's go. And so Herod, I mean, they pa- check this out. I mean, again, this is, this is not the Hallmark Christian story. This is middle of the night crisis. Mary, get the baby. I'll get the donkey, camel, whatever they had to ride or we're leaving on foot. And this family, an immense crisis. <laughs> They're sitting in their home going, can we take that? Can we take this? Can we take this? We're on the run. We've been given this responsibility to raise God's son and we're on the run. You got to think in Mary and Joseph's heart, there's a little bit of like, seriously? This is your kid? Can we not get an apartment with some security systems? Like, no, we're on the run. And Herod wants to not just show up and you know, ask some questions. He wants to seek and destroy the son. Which takes us to the third thing I want you to see about the Herod spirit. The Herod spirit is set to seek and destroy. And this is a natural progression. When you, at the beginning from the Herod spirit, you, you know all the scripture, but you choose to willingly miss the Savior. And then you can outside say, I want to worship him. But on the inside, you really know you're not willing to give up the throne of your heart. That eventually leads to seeking to destroy. Now you're in this story going like, I'm not actively trying to crush Christianity, Trent. I'm not trying to, you know, bash what God is doing in the world. I'm not trying to seek and destroy. How are you saying that maybe we as the church are maybe even susceptible to uh, this, this Herod spirit that seeks to destroy? Here, here's, here's how I would, would frame that for you. You may not be actively trying to do things to to uh, shut down a church or squelch the message of the gospel. 
But let's, let's make it very personal to your own life. Most of the damage we do to our souls is not from what we do. It's from what God tells us to do that we simply refuse. Or we say, I hear you, but in this aspect of my life, I'm gonna remain Lord. You can be savior of my soul, but I'm gonna be Lord of my sexuality. You can be savior of my soul, but I'm gonna be Lord of my finances. You can be savior of my wife and my kids and all these relationships, but Friday golf with the boys, I'm gonna do what I wanna do there. It's not so much a out there intentional seeking to destroy, but it's us by passively abstaining for what we know God is actually calling us to do, killing ourselves slowly. Destroying the fruit of the spirit that would be born in our life if we said, yes, you are both Lord and Savior. The story keeps going. It says they rose and they took the child and the mother by night and they departed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod, which I love that he died. Like, I shouldn't say that, but I, I, I just, it's, it's fascinating and the irony of the story here that, that he seeks to destroy Jesus and then he seeks to be this king of kings and the true king of the Jews and just the finality and the irony that just says, and Herod died. To remind us that Herod is not a hero. Herod is a human. And humans die. And a human could have came to the knowledge of the Messiah. A human could have studied the scriptures and found out who he really was. A human could have surrendered. But this human died. The historian Josephus recounts Herod's death, and it's, it's vulgar. It's his, he has what most uh, scholars and theologians think is uh, stomach cancer, and his, stomach's essentially, his stomach organs essentially just explode. Very like painful, miserable death at the end of his life. And uh, as I hear the story about Herod, I think about my own propensities, and I also think about this song by the secular theologians Metallica. And I've, I've quoted this song to you before, and some of you have heard this, uh, when we've talked about lordship and Jesus as king and our propensities to steal the crown. But Metallica, uh, James Hetfield, the lead singer of Metallica, he, he wrote this song called King Nothing. Um, and, I, and I really do believe that this song could have made it into the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, it is a very good commentary on our propensity to become the king of our life. And um, I want to read it to you. See if you can relate to anything here. I wish I may, I wish I might have this wish I wish tonight. Are you satisfied? Dig for gold, dig for fame. You dig to make your name. Are you pacified? I was asking, are you, are you satisfied with the pursuits that you're after? All the wants you waste, all the things you've chased, then it all crashes down and you break your crown and you point your finger, but there's no one around. Just want one thing, just to play the king. But the castle's crumbled, and you're left with just a name. Where's your crown, king nothing? Where's your crown? Herod died, and his name, the great Herod the Great, is but a footnote in history. He is not the king of the Jews. 
It was Jesus. He triumphed. And it's a reminder for all of us, like in our vain pursuits to build our kingdom here, I will either build, work, strive, relinquish all the effort of the energy that he puts in my body for the sake of allowing his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven, or I will build myself a sand castle of my best interest, my efforts, and it will crumble. And I'll look at the end of my life and try to point fingers to blame other people, but no one will be there. And there'll be no crown because I would have been king, nothing. Unless I surrender to, unless we surrender to the true king who's everything. The story goes on and it says, then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, the magi, and he became furious. And he set and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or older, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Again, this is a part of the story that doesn't find its way into our nice little you know, Christmas cantatas. But this is the reality of the first Christmas. There is genocide in Bethlehem. Because a wicked king refuses to bow to a throne of the one true king that is there. And this is a heartbreaking story. And I want you to understand is, did God get caught off guard when Herod did this? Goodness, no. Did God ordain that Herod would do this? Goodness, no, he did not ordain this. This is not God's plan. This is not God's purpose. This is God knowing that when the true king shows up, there will be opposition, wholehearted opposition. And he sees it. The passage goes on and we begin to see how even some of what's happening there is fulfilling prophecy. It says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And that's from Jeremiah 31. What Matthew is doing here is he's trying to help the people who's reading this now connect the story of Jesus back to the story of God's people. When God referred to the nation of Israel, oftentimes he would call them his only son, my one, Israel, my one and only son. And what he's trying to help see, show the people, Matthew is, that that is now finding its fulfillment in Jesus. And there's so much about the Exodus story and Jesus that put these two things together. I want you to hopefully see this. Let's, let's track so far. Can you remember any other story where somebody's in Egypt under the rule of an incredibly wicked king who's trying to kill baby boys? Any story? Come to mind? Yeah, that's all of Moses's story. And this is what's happening here as well. And I wanna hopefully let you see some even more of the, the parallels I think Matthew is trying to help them see. So there's a journey to Egypt. There's an oppressive king who kills children. Um, Jesus is called God's son and God calls him out of Egypt. That was the prophecy we read a second ago. Same way he called the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Egypt. Once the people had gotten out of it, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Jesus, as God's fulfillment of his true one and only son, spends 40 days there in the wilderness. He couldn't spend 40 years. He would have been past his time. 
In the same way that the nation of Israel crossed over the Jordan River, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. All of these things that are happening in the Old Testament are helping God's people. And Matthew leverages a lot of these. He is helping them see that everything that was on display in the way God loved and cared for the son that was Israel, metaphorically, is now fully on display by his actual son, Jesus, who is here. And this thing that he quotes, or this passage that he quotes from Jeremiah, is in reference to Rachel. Rachel is looked at as the matriarch of the nation of Israel, the, the, the key mom, the big mama of the entire nation of Israel. That's what she's looked at as. Jeremiah is writing his prophecy as the nation of Israel is getting ready to enter into Babylonian captivity because of their continual rebelling against the ways of God, because of their continual worship of idols. God is allowing the Babylonians to come in and to capture and many times uh, kill the people of Israel. And so Jeremiah is referencing, this is, this is like Rachel weeping over her children dying. And he's connecting all of what even happened there, even now to what happened in Bethlehem as Rachel, even into the future, is weeping over the atrocity of the Jewish boys who are being murdered because there's threat to the true king. Story goes on and hit 19 and 20. And then Herod dies officially. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Again, <laughs> guy has trouble sleeping, I believe. Uh, angel shows up in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. For those who sought to kill the kid, they're essentially gone. Joseph listens. He rises, takes the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when they had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Archelaus is Herod's son. Again, both just incredibly wicked. He was afraid to go there. So he's not, I'm not going back to Judea. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to find somewhere else. He's afraid to go. And then being warned in yet another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you search your Bible, like I gave you the quote out of Jeremiah, I gave you the quote out of Micah, Matthew is trying to cite Old Testament scripture to prove Jesus is king. And if you go to this one right here, that he would be called a Nazarene, you will not find an Old Testament verse that proves this passage. This is, there's a couple of different theories here. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. My favorite one, the one that I think is, is what Matthew is uh, trying to do here. Matthew is a tax collector. Personality is very precise. I think what Matthew is trying to do here is honestly uh, biblically flex on how awesome God is. Um, there's this uh, somewhat obscure passage in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 11, one and two. I'll read it to you. It says, there shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Okay, Jesse is David's um, dad, Jesse. They're from Bethlehem. This verse says, there shall come forth a shoot or a branch from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel, and of might. All those things describe who Jesus was. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So there's this prophecy that from the stump of Jesse will come a branch that will bear fruit and, and, and live out many of these messianic prophecies. Remember the city that Jesus is born in is Nazareth. The word Nezer, which is right there at the beginning of the word Nazareth, you know what that word means. It means in Hebrew, branch. Like, you know how when people are from uh, Monticello, we're like, they're from the sticks, okay? Like, Nazareth was literally called Stick Town. Like, that's 
what, what's happening here. A branch town, branches, wilderness, kind of like it's out there. It's not the city. It's not populated. What people, and again, this is one of the theories. Again, there's, there's not proof proof for this, but one of the theories is what Matthew is trying to do is to show people that Jesus is the branch from the root of Jesse. See, he was even born and grown up where he grew was in Branch Town, Branchville, USA. And it's all putting it together. So again, Matthew's whole point is to show Jesus is king. Matthew's whole point is to show this guy, Herod, is evil and wicked. When the true king comes, there's gonna be opposition to his kingdom. And so what I would say to us now, if we've taken the time to understand, okay, here's what the Herod spirit is. The Herod spirit can know God's word, but not know God. The Herod spirit can have worship in the heart, but not, or worship on the lips, but not worship on the heart. And the Herod spirit is gonna seek and destroy. Well, what does the Holy Spirit guide us to? And I actually feel like we see this really good on display in what we see the Magi do. The Holy Spirit helps us seek and surrender. I seek the truth. I seek to find Jesus. I'm not seeking my will, my way. I'm coming to Jesus, and when I come to him, I'm worshiping him wholeheartedly, and I'm surrendering to his will, and I'm surrendering to his will and his way because he is the true king. The Holy Spirit guides me to seek and surrender to his kingdom. Over and over again, we see when Jesus shows up and he begins his ministry as an adult, not baby Jesus anymore, but adult ministry Jesus, more often than not, the first words out of his mouth, and the gospel writers account this, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what he's essentially saying is not the kingdom is in like, when we think kingdom, we think like the magical kingdom, like Disney World, stuff like that. It's a place. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's saying is the reign has begun. It is here and it is now. It's not a place, but the rules of the true king are now in effect here as they were in heaven. And he goes throughout his life and he flips what we think of when we think of a kingdom completely on its head. And he lives his life showing us, embodying to us, what is this upside down kingdom where the first become last and the last shall become first. And he puts that on display, going to the fact of humbling himself, becoming obedient even to the form of death, as Philippians 2, 6 to 11 would say, taking on the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because he was humbling himself to the lowest of lows, dying as a cursed sinner upon a tree, God has now exalted him to the highest of highs. And as Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now the question is, is he your Lord? We can all get in a room and we were all for him being our savior. And there's some popular teaching that goes on in church. Well, you can have him as savior. Just have him as savior and then figure out all that Lord stuff. No, like it's, it's both and. It's not either or. He is my Lord and my savior. He is not my savior. And if I think about it, you know, it works out. He can be my Lord. It's not he's my Lord and I let him do all these things and I save myself either. He is my Lord and he is my savior. And these two work in tandem and unison and perpetuate and grow each of those individual aspects as I surrender to him fully in my life. There's a, a, a author that I, I really do appreciate and has helped me understand a lot of things in my life in regards to following Jesus. His name is Dallas Willard. And in talking about the kingdom of God, 
and trying to help people understand, well, what is that? What does that mean when Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand? How do I understand that? How do I explain that to a fourth grader? He said it this way, and I've never forgotten it. The kingdom of God is anywhere where what God wants done is done. The kingdom of God is anywhere where what God wants done is done. And so the question becomes for people like me and you, is my life a place where the kingdom of God has come? Me at school, has the kingdom come for who I am when I'm in that middle school or that high school? In my finances, has the kingdom come? Is where what God wants done, done in that area of my life? Is there, is there any area of my life where what God wants done is not being done? If so, that is a place where the kingdom of God has not come. And again, the reason it hasn't is because you've kept your crown on. The ruling scepter of your own personal agenda has stayed in your hand. And you have decreed that we shall not do that. The throne of your heart requires a hostile takeover. We don't release this thing easy. <laughs> we still want to eat what we want to eat, drink what we want to drink, say what we want to say, do what we want to do, watch what we want to watch, all those things. So the question becomes, is Jesus my Lord? Do I know him as Lord? And that knowledge is not just some head thing. It's not even doing a bunch of things. You keep going in Matthew, you bump into Matthew 7 with one of the most absolute haunting things Jesus ever said. He gives this parable and this teaching. And he says, in the last days, there's going to be a lot of people who come to me and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name and do many miraculous signs in your name? And I'll say to them, apart from me, I never knew you. The point I believe he's trying to make in that passage, and that's terrifying because those things, many of them are not even on my resume as a pastor. The point he's trying to make is you can even say Lord with your lips but not live Lord with your life. That's why he says, I don't know you at all. So my question is, do you know him? Do you know him for who he really is? The king he really is? Because I believe if you know him for the king he really is, you will have no problem surrendering to him as Lord. As we get ready to take communion, I want to remind you as we have all these conversations around king and what kind of king he is, as we get ready to celebrate communion, I want to remind you up close and personal the crown our king wore for me and for you. And this isn't some dollar general replica. This is from the Holy Land. This is something I had to hide from my kids because I didn't want them to get injured or lose an eyeball right before Christmas. This is something that I hold in my hands and I can't imagine this going through the head of my Savior, scraping against his cranium as Roman soldiers mash it in to his already bloodied face. This is why we can come to our king and go, what king would do this for me? We have a much easier time being subject to a king. I believe if we truly see and understand what he's done for us, to be subject to a king who would do this, it's the only way. 
And here's what's beautiful. The grace on display through the blood that covers your sins, represented by what he did there for us on the cross, that grace is not just sufficient to save us. That grace is sufficient to sustain us as we daily take up our cross, die to ourselves, and surrender to his lordship in our lives. And so as you commune with him today, play the image of the crown that he wore for you in your head. And maybe just ask forgiveness for all the times that you've tried to put a much nicer crown than this on your head and you've tried to sit on the throne of your life and rule and reign and do things your way. The good news is this crown is not on his head anymore. I believe there's one that would blind us if we could see right now on his head. And one day he's going to rip the clouds open and come and return and bring heaven down to earth. And the kingdom is going to fully come on earth as it is in heaven. And on that day, my friend, my prayer is that you are found going from captivity to sin into royalty because he wore this crown to forgive you of those sins. If you don't know that forgiveness, today is a day where you can get it, receive it fully, have your sins paid for, and you can be washed clean, and you can have the promise of being freed from trying to work yourself into a better life and receive the abundant life that he's come to give you today. If you want to give your life to him, surrender wholly to him, I'd invite you to do that today, to pray right there in the confines of your brand new chair and ask him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Repent of your sins and turn and follow him. And if you make that decision today, I would love to be able to baptize you into this family that he has paid for your entrance with his blood. And let that blood be what runs through your veins. If you want to be baptized today, we have everything that you would ever need to to do that. I'll be back there in the back. If you would love to surrender your life wholly to him and be baptized, come and talk to me and we'll make that happen. We have everything you would need to do that. Some of you, you know that there's a there's something that your king has been asking you to do for a really long time where you said, you can be Lord of a lot of places in my life, but not that area. Today, I pray that you would take the crown off as you see the one who wore this crown for you and go, I never deserve to tell you no. And I repent and I turn and I will follow you no matter what the cost. Let's pray. Father, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. I pray that this gospel message that we've heard today would change our hearts, change our lives, and change our minds. That's what real repentance is. It's a change in the mind so we change with our life. Free us from our propensity to have the spirit of Herod and let us, God, as your people, be guided by the Holy Spirit. Let it reign fully in us when our flesh as it is, longs to take back the crown, to sit on the throne, to rule and reign in place of your will. Forgive us, God. Call us back to King Everything over all of our life, past, present, and eternal. In your name.